Lead us in prayer. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the day you've given us. Thank you for uh, your people. Thank you for Christ and him crucified. We do love you. We do want to honor you now. We want to look at your word. And we do want to learn about him. We want to grow in our knowledge of Christ. And we want to grow in our affection for him too. Lord, I pray that we would uh, reconsider your love for us demonstrated in Christ crucified. And we pray that we worship you from what we look at today in your word. And praise in Christ's name. Amen. A word of explanation about the outfit that I'm wearing. Uh, when I was with you in August, I had mentioned that I was to be going to Nigeria in January. And uh, I didn't go to Nigeria in January. One of the young men from the congregation wanted to go along. And I wrote back and said, I haven't heard any details and so on. Well, the lady that was to sponsor me, uh, or that was sponsoring me and, and had extended the invitation for me to come, died on November the 23rd. And um, her funeral was in February. And one of her nieces, her oldest niece, is a part of our congregation in London where I pastor. And so um, this was actually the official wedding, or excuse me, the official funeral um, garment that was worn by the family members. And so the one was made special for me and one for my wife um, because they said that they count us as part of their Nigerian family. So I thought it would be appropriate, uh, well, this morning where I was preaching, both of us wore the Nigerian outfit, but I thought it'd be appropriate to explain to you why I didn't go to Nigeria in January and to give you a word on that. Now, I, I want to do a couple of things in our time together this evening. First of all, um, are any of you familiar with this book that has just been released? Okay. All right. Um, I was in London and I saw them uh, advertised and decided, hey, this is something that I need to uh, be sure to take advantage of the offer that they had. They had these available that if you bought five copies, you could get them for uh, $6. And so I bought five copies. And um, I said, I don't know where, how I'm going to use these, but uh, I'm going to make them available to whoever at, at whatever I paid. What, so I brought four copies along because I gave one away last night. But I want to address the matter of what is the deity of Christ. Now, before I do that, I want to say that when I taught the course on modern religious issues at Clearwater Christian College, first semester, I go into it and I required the students to buy a book by a man named J. Gresham Machen, M-A-C-H-E-N. The book was written originally in 1930, and many of the students looked and they said, modern? What in the world are you doing making us get a book that's almost 100 years old? And I said at that time, I said, Machen's materials that were written in the 1920s and 30s are more relevant today than perhaps they even were when he wrote them in the 1920s and 30s. And so, you know, again, a number of students protested and they were upset with that. They thought they wanted to get something of the latest and the greatest and the fastest and so forth. But as they got into it and began to read the material, they began to say, what did this guy understand? Wow, he was, he was way ahead of his time. And so what I found interesting was just within the, last, uh, within the last few weeks, this book came out, The Person of Jesus, Radio Addresses on the Deity of the Savior, J. Gresham Machen. And the recommendations of this little book, um, very, very fascinating. Tim Keller from Redeemer Presbyterian in New York, Al Mohler, President of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Michael Reeves, President of Union School of Theology. Uh, it's interesting what he says. Here is theology that floats like a butterfly and stings like a bee. It, 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 in these addresses, Machen defends the high view, uh, high and biblical view of Christ with punch and quite stunning verve, fresh, enlightening, lo and logically compelling. This is not only good theology, but a good model of apologetics. Um, yeah, Sinclair Ferguson, Philip Ryken, uh, Richard Gaffin, 
Joel Beakey, Joseph Novenson, Gerald Bray, uh, Herman Selterhus, um, Thomas Schreiner, John Hanna, David Wells, uh, Sean Lucas, Robert Yarbrough, etc., etc., etc. All sorts of pages of the commendations of this book. It's not a big book. But I want to draw your attention to chapter 2 and uh, just a couple of things from it. I won't read the whole chapter, but I, as we uh, think about the doctrine of Christ, we've been talking about the great mystery of the Trinity. We have seen that according to the Bible, there is one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. There are some places in the New Testament where all three persons of the Godhead are mentioned in the same verse. But much the more important or extensive part of the biblical proof of the doctrine of the Trinity is found in those pages where parts of the great doctrine are so mentioned as that when they are put together, the completed doctrine inevitably appears. I want to begin to talk to you today about the one great central part of the doctrine. I want to talk to you about the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. But before I can say a single word to you about the deity of Christ, I must tell you what the term the deity of Christ means. Or rather, I must make perfectly clear to you what it does not mean. I must make perfectly clear to you the fact that the term deity of Christ and the assertion Jesus is God are often so employed today as to mean something quite contrary to the Bible and to the Christian faith. Machen? Yes. In the 1920s and, and, and the, so 100 years ago, he was facing challenges that we are facing in the year 2017. Do you not see, my friends, that when a man says he believes in the deity of Christ, or when he says that he believes that Jesus is God, the significance of such assertions depends upon, altogether upon the question of what the man does, or, or excuse me, what the man makes them mean by the term deity or the term God. So what, what does the man make the, these terms mean? Okay. If a man has a low view of deity, then when he says that he believes in the deity of Christ, that means that he has a low view of Christ. And if he has a low view of God, then when he says that he believes that Jesus is God, that means that he has a low view of Jesus. But here is where the confusion comes in. A Christian man, hearing some unbelievers say that he believes in the deity of Christ or believes that Jesus is God, attributes to that unbeliever the Christian definition of the term deity or the term God. So he assumes that the person he's talking to is using the words in the same way that he is. So he's willing to pass that, to, to extend that opportunity to them. He simply assumes that the term, that the term deity or the term God means what Christians have always taken those terms as meaning. That is, he assumes that those terms refer to a personal God, creator and ruler of the world, separate by a mighty gulf from all finite things. The consequence is that he is very much impressed when those terms are used about Jesus by a man who otherwise seemed to be very far from the Christian faith. Did you not hear that man say, he exclaims, that he believes in the deity of Christ? Did you not hear him call Jesus God? Well, if he believes in the deity of Christ and if he is willing to call Jesus God, he cannot be so very wrong. He may be unorthodox in some particulars, but surely the root of the matter, he must be in him. When I hear Christian people talking in that fashion, about one of the noted unbelievers of the day, I have the sad feeling that those Christian people are, if I may use plain language, being deceived. I am not a bit ashamed at laying stress upon this point because I think it is a matter of profound importance. If I were sure I could, I, I could get it really straight in your minds, I should think it worthwhile to devote not merely a part of one lecture to it, but the whole of a series of lectures. 
The more that I look out upon the condition of the church, the more I am convinced that untold harm is being done by this double use of the term deity and of the term God. The willingness of unbelievers to use the terms in their sense, coupled with the proneness of Christians to understand them on, in their own, is causing the great issue in the church between Christianity and unbelief to be uh, obscured. I want to stop for a moment. Sometimes on Sunday night, um, I when, when, when over in London it's five hours ahead, so right now it's 10 after 10 at night, okay? Um, by, by that time, I am... Um, pretty well like a wet piece of, um, of, of um, pasta or a, a wet noodle, okay? I'm kind of wiped out. But I will try to listen to Pastor Mike with the morning message. And sometimes I even get to listen to this class um, by, by turning on the live stream. And if I don't get it done on Sunday night, on Monday morning, I try to listen to, um, to Mark in, in his exposition in, in the Old Testament. But sometimes, Mike gets pretty fired up on things of what believers and unbelievers aren't doing and aren't doing in the world. And then Mark gets up and, he, and he's stressing, we, we've got to understand this. And, and he, he comes back appealing to you. And what I'm saying to you is, dear brothers and sisters, these brothers are not calling in the dark an empty call. They're not crying wolf. There are real situations that are here, they're on the landscape, and they are very real. And there are warnings that you're blessed to be hearing. Hear them. That's my appeal to you. And no, they're not paying me to say that. Um, okay, so, but let, let me come further. The willingness of unbelievers to use the terms in their sense, coupled with the proneness of Christians to understand them in their own, is causing the great issue of the church between Christianity and unbelief to be obscured. What is the result? The result is that the church is being undermined from within. Christian people are being lulled to sleep by this use of orthodox terminology. Unbelievers are quietly gaining control. The young people in the church are being trained up in unbelief Precious souls are being destroyed. And wait, this guy was saying this almost 100 years ago in his day and time. Is that relevant for our day? Oh, it absolutely is. But I, I digress. Let, let me come over just a, a bit further. I won't read you the whole thing nor the whole book. But let me pick up with... Uh, yeah. You can tell that they are using the term in some sense entirely different from the Christian sense because of the things they, that they say about Jesus in detail or more because of the things that they will not say. They will not say that Jesus was born of a virgin. They will not say that he worked miracles. They will not say that the things that he said were always true. They will not say that he died as our substitute on the cross. They will not say that he rose from the tomb on the third day. Yet they say he was God. Now, just a, a point in that to, to reflect on that. One of the books that I was required to read on the Gospel of John was written by a, 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 an Episcopal bishop, a retired Episcopal bishop from Newark, New Jersey. And in it, he deals with the matter of the man Lazarus, the account of Lazarus in John chapter 11. And he says, that is out of whole cloth. John pulled it out of the air and put it on the lips of Jesus. Now, what's he saying? He's saying it didn't happen. It was once upon a time in a land far away. And the man says... I am a Christ follower. I am a born-again Christian. But I don't believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. And I don't believe that he rose from the grave. 
And I don't believe that most of the things that are written in the Gospel of John that he ever said or did. And that man is accorded status as a Christian minister in the United States. England has its own problems and the, the Europe has its own problems. But I'm talking... So, Machen wasn't just uh, letting off steam. When they say he was God, they're saying something... Are they saying something orthodox? Is that orthodox assertion of theirs to be put to their credit over against the unorthodox assertions that they have made? We answer, no. A thousand times, no. When these men say that they believe in the deity of Christ or that they believe Jesus is God, that is not the most orthodox but the least orthodox thing that they say. It is an orthodox, it, it is an orthodox and a blessed thing to say that Jesus of the Bible is God, but to say that this poor, deluded enthusiast of modern re reconstruction is God is horrible blasphemy. How low these men must think of God if they can use his name in that way. But in what sense do these men use the term God or the term deity when they apply it to, purely, to the purely human Jesus? They have reconstructed him, and, and how do they use it in the New Testament account? Sometimes they mean by calling Jesus God merely that they try to enter into some religious experience as the religious experience of those of the past generations called Jesus God. In the creeds of the church, they say Jesus is called God. We do not believe, they say, that he is God in the sense in which the authors of those creeds believed it. Shall we then cease to use the creeds? No, not at all, they say. When the authors of the creeds called Jesus God, they were expressing it in language of their day, a very precious experience which we also can share. So, they say we can use the creeds still. We do not, of course, take them literally, but we can use them as expressions of the historic faith of the church. We can still hold to the underlying spiritual meaning of the doctrines that they contain, including the doctrine of the deity of Christ. Such repetitions of the creeds and such professions of a belief in the deity of Christ are doing untold harm in the church today. No doubt they are, they are comforting to the men who practice them. I have sympathy with those men. To those men, this use of traditional terminology seems like the stained glass in an old cathedral. It puts everything in a soft, in, in a sort of dim religious light. It, it seems to impart a solemn glow of sanctity to what would appear to be bald unbelief if it were viewed in the cruel light of the day. But the trouble is that ordinary people of the church are being deceived. They hear a man repeating the creeds. He seems to be repeating them with an utmost fervor. He is particularly fervent in expressing his belief in the deity of Christ. They, are sim they simply assume that he means by the deity of Christ what people have always meant by it. So they tolerate him in the church and put him in a position of authority. Time goes on. Many such men are put into positions of greater and greater authority, and they undermine the faith of the church partly by their words, but more particularly by their silence. A deadly vagueness gradually affects the church's witness. The young people of the church are not soundly indoctrinated. People do not know what is wrong, but the church loses its power. Finally, the mask is thrown off, and the people who really believe in the Bible and in the creed of the church and who are dead in earnest about that belief are treated as troublemakers. The church sinks down into a merger with the world. I will stop at this point, but if you'd like to pick up a copy, I have... Um, I have three copies. If you'd like to pick up a copy, they will cost six, uh, six, not six pounds, six dollars, six dollars. Okay, six, six dollars. But.
I'm saying to you, this is a book really well worth your while. You say, well, why would you sell these copies? I have the original version of it. This is chapters 10 through 16 out of the original version that's much bigger. And um, um, I, I inherited it from Dr. Steele, but uh, it was written in 1935. And so it's, it's about that thick, and it has lots of footnotes. This doesn't have footnotes, okay? It's written to be available and accessible to you. What's the title? The Person of Jesus. No, it is the, um, the Christian faith. I, I believe it, it is the Christian faith in the modern world uh, by J. Gresham Machen, and it's the radio talks. Let me get that precisely. Yes, this volume is derived in part from chapters 10 to 16 of the Christian faith in the modern world um, was originally pr uh, published in America by Macmillan in 1936. So, and it, they, tra they, they um, utilized the ESV instead, and ESV didn't exist in 1936, but uh, so they utilized the ESV in this um, revision of it. But I leave that with you to say, cherish the opportunity to study doctrine and to hear the word of God faithfully proclaimed in this place. Now, Stephen allowed me to see his notes that he's been using, and I wanted to uh, just give one little caveat in terms of what he, he, he addressed the area of fundamentalism, and I didn't see in his notes the matter of uh, the, the, what I, I think is a missing core in understanding the fundamentals. And so... Help me out. If I want to build a fire, Ezekiel, what do I have to have to build a fire? Have you ever helped your, your dad or your grandfather build a fire? What do you have to have to build a fire? Can you tell me one thing? Any idea what you have to have to build a fire? You have to have wood. Good, good, good. Okay, so you have to have some kind of fuel. So we'll go with wood, he said. What else do you need to have a fire? Oxygen. What else do you need? Ignition, ignition. All right. Now... Help me. Can I build a fire without any of those three ingredients? Are you sure? Do I have to have all three in order to have a fire? No, no, it's not intended to be a trick question. Now, if you need to have all three... Those are the essentials, okay? Those are the essentials. So let's use that word. If you have to have the essentials, but let's say that somebody walks in here and says, wait a minute, I have a PhD from the University of South Florida in pyrotronics, and I will tell you that you can build a fire without having oxygen. I have a PhD in that. What would you do at that point? Would you say, that's fine. We can have a fire without oxygen. No, you come back and you say, no. In order to have a fire, you have to have these essential ingredients. If I don't have those essential ingredients, if I'm missing one, I can't have fire. The fundamentals, the whole idea of the fundamentals of Christianity, came back in terms of the matter of the essentials. Non-negotiable things that if you pull one out, you cease to have biblical Christianity. Now, Stephen is exactly right in saying that all kinds of things have been added into that. But don't 
lose sight of the matter of the essentials and non-essentials. If I could bring it down into those terms to help you to, to think about that. When it comes to the matter of the very things that Machen was addressing that they have felt was essential enough that, that they have uh, republished this, it comes back to the matter of saying the essentials of biblical Christianity, if you pull one out, you may still put the name Christian, you may put all kinds of names up, but you cease to have biblical Christianity. And that's the key point in that. Now, the historic battle then was over this matter of saying, can we deny the essentials of Christianity and still be regarded as Christian. But I just quoted to you from a bishop from Newark, New Jersey, who denies the essentials of Christianity, but is freely acknowledged, and, and I just received a notice in my email uh, three days ago that a brand new book has come out by him, and, and they're seeking to promote it and so forth from a major publisher here in the United States. No, I'm not out to buy it. Um, if, I, if I read anything by this, this rascal, I do it only to critique it because it, it is, the man is, uh, yeah, he's a wretched, wicked man. That's the best way I can say. And I have seen relatives. Uh, my wife's uh, cousin was a, a, a seminary graduate who um, his favorite theologian was this man, and the man's name is John Spong, S-P-O-N-G, John Shelby Spong. And I have seen people's faith utterly wrecked by this man. Uh, he, he came and he spoke in Clearwater at the United Church of Christ, just down the street from the uh, Phillies ballpark. And it wasn't long after that 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 church actually closed. And I, I had to just quietly wonder, was that the Lord saying, you deny my name, even in an apostate denomination like that, I'm going to close this down. I, I, I can't say that dogmatically, but I, I, I did observe those things take place. So I come back with this of saying, when you talk about the fundamentals, so I... I, it, it's exactly correct. Even the independent fundamental churches of America, um, Dick Gregory, who was a longtime friend of mine, I knew him from, well, I knew him back from the early 1980s, and he was the longtime national director of the IFCA. He said that increasingly they, they wanted to move away from, from emphasizing the term fundamental because you go in and check into a hotel or whatever, and they're, they're thinking that it's a radical fundamentalist group who's going to blow things up and that, that sort of thing. All right, we have to be careful in the use of the term. But on the other side, don't lose sight of the necessity of having the essentials of the Christian faith in order to have the Christian faith. And increasingly today, people are being called upon to trade off one essential or another essential and say, well, you'll negotiate. Can't can we? Can't, oh, come on, come on. We, 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 we can do away. Look, look, look. We'll be all right. We can still have, we, we, we can still have fire. We, we, we'll just, we'll, we'll have it. Trust me. No, you won't. And that's one of the key things that you need to be prepared with. Now, let me stop before I move into the atonement, any questions you wish to raise at this point? Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, no, that, that's an excellent question. 
I would say, first of all, first and foremost, we have to remember that the master strategist behind it is the devil himself. Okay? But secondly, you move from the period of the Middle Ages and, and so on into the age of the Enlightenment. And until that point in time, it was still held that in order to study anything, you did so through the lens of Scripture. So whether you're studying science, whatever, you did so through the lens of Scripture. Then Charles Darwin came with the whole view of the origin of the species of coming with an alternate way of the world coming into existence and saying that the, it, and, and Darwin was a, a doddering old man. Actually, I, I was in a place in um, London in the Bible Museum in, in London and I've actually held his wife's Bible. His wife, uh, Mrs. Wedgwood, was a Sunday school teacher in, in, a, in a church in, in England there. And until his death, Darwin never renounced that he was a Christian. And so I, I, I sat in a lecture in uh, uh, 2011, and I heard a man who is the Darwin lecturer at the Darwin Center in London, who said, why are you people so upset about Darwin? He never denied his faith. Even to the end, he kept his membership in the Church of England. He, he, he professed to be a Christian. But there was a man by the name of Aldous Huxley who was intense. In his, he'd grown up in a, in a pastor's home. He'd grown up uh, hearing the things. His father and grandfather and great-grandfather had been in the ministry. But Huxley developed an, an, an antagonism toward Christianity, and he set out as an evangelist to proclaim Darwinian thinking. As he did so, he went out aggressively to sell people on it. The scientific community had had views of Darwin. Even Darwin's grandfather had had some of those views, but he died basically as a pauper. It, it, it didn't go anywhere. But with the combination of the, the rise of the Enlightenment movement and then of of Darwin's origin of the species, and then in terms of the matter of, uh, of Huxley promoting these things, that became quietly embraced within the academic arena, and it became embraced increasingly in the area of Christian thinking. So immediately, if you're going to assault these issues that are going to confront life issues, you've got to get rid of the authority. So the first thing is to attack, what's the Bible begin with? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, so you attack the, the person and the existence of God, then the matter of creation, and then the matter in terms of the whole dynamic of redemption. And so that whole sequence of things has come as a, 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 a side assault, a back assault, a frontal assault, every angle possible has been in a long war against God. And so I, I really think it's beautifully summarized in Psalm 2 where it talks about that the peoples of the earth gathered in their hostility of saying, we will not have this God. So it's not a coincidental thing. It's not a subtle thing. Excuse me. It's, it, sometimes it's a very subtle thing, but it's not an accidental thing. And... What stands in the way of the advance of that happening on a global scale? It's the existence of Christians who dare to say, no, this is what God has said. This is the word of God. We believe it, we stand upon it, and we want you to believe it lest you perish. That is the horrifying threat to those who want to have it on a global scale. That's a quick synopsis of it, but that's, yeah. Other questions? Yes? You're right. And it keeps, and, and as Calvin says in the Institutes, there are many things that you don't know what a person believes until it's by what they say or what they write. 
So you can't just, and, and I mean, with, with blogsphere and so forth, you can't keep up with what everybody says on everything. But when you're engaging with somebody, you need to go ahead and ask questions. And not just, uh, right? Good? You, you, you agree with me, don't you? Wait, 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 wait. Tell me what you think. Now, it nearly took my life trying to keep up with that at Clearwater of uh, great, all the long hours of reading and grading and critiquing papers, long and short. But why did I do it? I was determined to try to, to help the students to realize these are not just things where I'm going to say, add a boy, add a boy, add a girl, oh, I, oh. No, I want to know, what do you really think? Where are you coming from? And that's what we have to do all the way through. We have to keep asking hard questions. And that's not a threat. That is a safeguard for you and for the body of Christ. Other questions? And see, this is where, again, back to the fundamental issue, the question of fundamentals. Harry Emerson Fosdick was in New York City, and he was a very popular and skillful communicator and so on. And he said, do I believe that Jesus was divine? Absolutely, I believe that Jesus was divine. And so was my mother. Now, everybody and their brother has a new definition of divine. Uh, do I hate my mother? No. I thank God for my mother. But my mother was in no way in that sense of divinity. And so that's where you're exactly right. You have to go back and ask questions and keep that's right. That's right. And you will have the deepest fellowship with those that when you keep peeling back, you keep coming. It doesn't mean that you agree on everything. But on the essentials, there's no negotiation. Other question? Yes. One of the loudest is, they say, we're making some changes, but we're not going to change anything of the, of the required doctrine. You need to hear, whip, 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 all kinds of sirens, all kinds of hisses of the devil, because that is consistently the frontal denial that says there are big changes coming, but they're going to come through the back door, and unless you are watching very carefully, they're going to topple you. Secondly, is the matter of paring down definitions to make it appear that they're not making changes, 
when in fact they are making changes. So there will be changes in moral standards, there will be changes in doctrinal positions and standards, and there will be other areas where, again, this, this major denial of saying, we're making, we're making some changes, but you, you just have to trust us. We're not making any. Then I'm just saying that's the time that you need to be asking questions and asking hard questions. And if people get all upset with you and they say, you know, maybe it's time that you find a different place. Maybe it's time that they find a different place. Because um, I, I had a conversation with somebody uh, in, in November of 2015 who told of a particular organization that I had worked with and, and told of uh, speaking at the leadership and uh, raising some questions that I had raised. And the leadership said to them, you know, maybe it's just time that you really need to take a step off of being in, in leadership here because, you know, Carl's views are really, they're, 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 they're really not with the contemporary world. They're, they're not with it and so on. And uh, we're making changes, but we're not making any essential changes. And the person had listened enough to raise questions and continue. And I would just say, those are the kinds of things that ultimately will bring a collapse. And um, I, we just met with an older couple last night, and they told how that in the Navajo Nation, this man's parents had been missionaries there, and they were under a denomination. The denomination that Machen, well, they run in, in the Presbyterian Church, the same time that Machen was uh, being put out of the Presbyterian Church and so on. They were in the Navajo Nation, and they firmly took a stand for the Word of God and continued on. And that ministry continues to this day and is making a difference among the Native Americans in Arizona, in New Mexico, in that region. But they said that all of the churches that went along with the changes, virtually all of them closed in short order in the 1930s and 1940s. And today, very few exist in any sense of having any Christian connection. That's some examples historically. I don't know if that helps with... Yeah, okay. Other question? Well, we only have a couple minutes to look at atonement, but let's, let's take a moment. When it comes to the matters of the doctrine of the atonement. I want to um, address one day, and I didn't see these in, in the notes, and so I, I just want to uh, raise this as far as the popular view of the theory of the atonement that I call the democratic theory, the democratic theory of the atonement. Now, are you, do you cover the democratic theory? Yeah, so, so I'm just going to take a couple of minutes with the democratic view. It is the view of the atonement that it is the great cosmic equalizer. The view says, well, it's, it's, really, it's really a view for the United States at this point in time. Democratic view says... Democratic view says that God has voted that he wants you to be saved, and God has made a way for you to be saved. But Satan has voted that he wants you to be lost, and he wants you to spend eternity with him. Now, in working from that, God has cast his vote for your soul to win you over. But Satan has cast his vote. And so it ends up being 
a great election gridlock. So in this, Satan has the title to your soul and he wants to keep it. Jesus has died and he wants to win you. Who wins? Now in this view, okay, so I call it the democratic view. Who wins in this? That's right. Now, I did not, I wasn't in the United States last November, but I would venture to bet. No, I won't bet. Okay, I don't, I'm, I, 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 okay, so I don't wage, uh, wage bets, etc. But my, my guess is that there were tracts that were distributed in the United States with this very thing on them. God has voted. Satan has voted. Jesus has voted. Satan, this is election. God has voted. Jesus has voted. They're locked. It's a duel. So who wins? Wow. That puts you in control as being more powerful of God, than God or Satan. And I will say to you, that is one of the most damaging doctrines on the atonement that is out there. But it is repeatedly put out there. It's put out in colorful red, white, and blue tracks and, and, and so on. Uh, but it typically comes out and so... Uh, did, did you have a contested election last November? Uh, I, I think there was some kind of a pretty intense election here in the United States. Okay, uh, yeah. Uh, pardon? Um, well, uh, trust me on the news. Uh, anything that is uh, any uh, uh, sniffle or sneeze that happens in the United States, uh, London picks it up or you know talks about it and so forth. But um, I come back to you and say. This is one of the most popular views of the atonement in many Christian circles today. And I would say to you, you, don't, you, you won't read a lot about that in Erickson or even in Buswell or in Dunsweiler, but it is one of the most damaging views on the atonement. So I'm saying to you, don't embrace the democratic view of the atonement. And I'm out of time. So... Uh, we'll stop for today. But any, any final question? Well, then let's pray together. Lord, we give you thanks for the opportunity to study, to think together. Oh, we thank you for the church. We thank you for Grace Bible Church and for your preserving and protecting hand upon this ministry. And I ask that you will continue to build your church with a mighty hand. Oh, Father, I pray for even the service that's to follow this evening that you will be pleased to meet with us and by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would meet with us and teach us for your glory and for your honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, I didn't have you for modern religious issues, but the book you're talking about, Christianity and Liberalism? That is the book. And you would recommend them to read it? I would strongly urge you to read that book. I, I, would, I would urge you to read that book. Um, yeah. Uh, and you, you can pick it up. I don't know how inexpensively, but even Westminster Seminary republished that book, um, Christianity and Liberalism, a few years ago, a couple of years ago, um, and because they hadn't heard me, okay, but uh, they came back and said, this book is so relevant with what it has to say. And the same thing in terms of, of I, I went through and I read this in its entirety yesterday um, to be sure that I was remembering correctly what I had thought I had remembered, and uh, it's good stuff. Uh, worth your while. There's an audio version I listened to last year. It's really well done. And what? with the way Mason writes, it's, it lends itself well to an audio version. Well, these were radio broadcasts. Well, I'm talking about Christianity and liberalism. Oh, okay. Yeah. Good. Well, that was radio broadcast also. Oh, it was? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it, w it was put out for, for the, the common Christian to grow and, and to develop it. Is there anybody that... Do you have a copy of Life and Times of uh, Jesus the Messiah by Edersheim? I do. Paperback or hardback? Hardback. Okay. 
Is there anybody who would like to have a copy of Edersheim's Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah? Uh, I know it, it looks like a big book, but... Uh, but it's not. It's not. Uh, it, it, well, it is big, okay? It's two volumes in one. But the, 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 the thing of it is, Edersheim gives a, a... He was a Jewish writer. He gives a good coverage in terms of, of um, Judaism and Christianity. And uh, uh, the, the, the only drawback is that there's some places where he gets some anachronistic um, uh, connections. But all in all, it's really an outstanding work and uh, trustworthy. When I had to read Shur, the five volumes of Shur, um, I was stunned to get to the end and find that he had never once referred to Edersheim. The reason? Edersheim was a conservative. And he was writing as a man who'd been con converted to Christianity. And so uh, I'm, I'm saying it's really a worthwhile um, book, and uh, it is yours. It's in your hand, sir. The other book, but, uh, That's fine. Uh, well, the price of this is even better. Okay, so. How much, how much? It's for free, is what you're saying. That's what I'm I'll saying to you. <laughs> Can you afford that? I better. <laughs> God bless you. Hey, listen, um, anachronistic view. Um, I heard you mention that. What, what's an anachronistic? Anachronistic. When you take something in, in terms of some of the rabbinic writings that were later and treat them as though they were actually contemporary in the first century, okay? As there have been more detailed studies of rabbinic materials, rabbinic literature, some things didn't come until two and three hundred years after the time of Christ. And so to treat that as identical with the first century, what was happening in the first century, can be problematic. But that is, uh, I, I would just say, that's, that's a rare situation in Edersheim. And so I, um, I had an extra copy and I wanted to put it in. It doesn't do any good sitting on the shelves, on my shelves in Clearwater. All right.